Hi, this is Sergeant Betsy Smith with the National Police Association, and this is the NPA Report. I am so thrilled to have with me a, a man that I have uh, I've admired for decades, and uh, I'm a, a great supporter of his work and, uh, and especially his book. Um, and that is Dr. Kevin Gilmartin. Doc, welcome to the show. Good morning, Betsy. Thank you. It's great to see you. It's great to visit an old friend. I we I really uh, I I'm so excited to talk to you today because even though you know we're both uh, old pros at uh, police training, there's so much new happening. But but I I've got to start with you know your book, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. Every cop, every police family needs to own it. Um, really changed the course of how we look at um, police officer mental health, and now. That's a big topic. Is police officer mental health still a big problem for us today in 2020, Doc? It, you know, it really is. I think it's, it's probably even gotten to be somewhat of a larger uh, problem because of the increased demands on police today. Uh, you know, when we wrote the book, I wanted to get one concept across to police that was being missed, I thought, and that's the physiological aspects of police stress. We have tremendous progress been made in the last decades in police stress. Most agencies have mental health programs, they have peer support, they have trauma debriefing programs. We really are getting a lot of things done correctly, but there's one aspect that we're totally missing, and that's the biological effects of policing. You know, police officers, when they're on the street, they know what it feels like to be a cop. They're describing a physical sensation of aliveness, of energy, of quick thinking. That, that's what the term hypervigilance will refer to. Very necessary for officer safety. The problem is that's a biological state. And that biological state sets officers up for a whole series of physiological illnesses later in life, but it also sets them up in the immediate time for depression. The officer goes, picture, picture like a sine wave, a roller coaster. The officer on duty has this elevated level of alertness. Then they drop into this depressive type state after work. In that depressive type state, they stop doing all the things that are necessary to make their life successful. But simultaneously, that's when the cop starts gaining two, three extra pounds a year. Everybody jokes about it. They don't think it's an issue, but it's two or three pounds incrementally and cumulatively over the years. That's why after 20 years of policing, you look at a picture of a police officer and 90% of them have gained weight. They're, they're significant weight, sometimes 20, 25 pounds. But we're also seeing incremental weight gain and sleep disorder. When those two combinations are together, those start producing tremendous depression, mood swings, and we're starting to look at issues that in the long term, there's a group out of Reno, Nevada that's looking at heart disease, stroke, and precursors of Alzheimer's, and cops are scoring high on all of those. The, the tragedy about this is it's so easy to prevent. So when I look at mental health programs, I say, yeah, you have it right if you're talking about taking traditional clinical services from out in the community and making them available to police officers, that's fine. But if you're not addressing the sleep disorder and the incremental weight gain, you're not only setting the officer up for depression, which plays a role, significant role in, in the suicide rates of police, you're also setting police officers up for bad judgment, 
and decision-making with reaction time errors. And that becomes tragic tactically. So when I look at the, the tremendous progress we've made in mental health, I still see this huge void in the physiological issues. And that was what motivated me to write the book, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. Because emotional survival is not just traditional mental health. It's having a successful life and being able to operationally do the job as a police officer. Well, and I think that's what we need to understand is, you know, in, in the insane times that is 2020, in the age of hashtag resist, and so many police officers are getting ambushed, and many more are standing on the riot lines and getting yelled at and thrown frozen, you know, they get frozen water bottles and bricks thrown at them and things like that. Um, it, it, it's, it's so, it's even more stressful to be a police officer. You know, we used to worry about, uh, you know, am I going to, Am I going to make a mistake? Am I going to have a use of force situation outside of policy? Now we worry about, am I going to get indicted? Am I going to go to prison? Am I going to lose my job? Am I going to lose my family? Um, what kind of assistance are you seeing from police administrators, from the community to aid with this terrible problem of, you know, the police physicality issues that you're talking about? Well, you know, the first thing, I, I have mixed feelings about what's going on right now to our police in the United States. One is I have tremendous pride when I look at the professionalism and the patience that these, these police officers are, are, are demonstrating. They're, they're being exposed to abuse that no public official should be exposed to. So I have tremendous pride for our rank and file police officers, but I have tremendous frustration for the lack of some of the executives in policing defending the officers. And I understand they're political appointees and they have to kind of kowtow to the political powers within their given communities. But I see a lot of cities have just thrown their police officers under the bus. They, they just, they're, and that's frustrating to me. What's also I find frustrating is the lack of generalized information that members of the public have. I, I, I find myself in social encounters where people just say, well, isn't it a shame that police officers uh, indiscriminately shoot people of color? I said, it would be a tragedy if that in fact happened, but it doesn't in fact happen. So, you know, you can buy the big lie. And, and the big lie right now that's being passed is that police officers are brutal racists. And it, it's very easy to sell a big lie. When you look at countries that have bought the big lies, I, mean, I always think of, you know, Nazi Germany buying the big lie that all their economic issues were the problems of the Jews. And, and, and they were, therefore, they were able to rationalize just brutal inhumanity of the Holocaust. Normal, rational country was swayed because nobody in a leadership position demonstrated the ethics of what's transpiring. Well, police officers, act inappropriately, they're immediately addressed by the police organizations. I mean, I, I'm, I'm astounded. It, I, I guess they've forgotten that internal affairs exists. And I think they've forgotten that, pol that police officers are arrested by other police officers. They're not arrested by social workers. They're arrested by good cops who are intolerant of bad cops. And it is, I, I think that it's time that the general public gets some factual information, not just some emotional information, uh, there's a lot of low information, highly emotional people. And I, I think it's time that the police profession defend itself, not, not physically, but just with facts, with what's the science of what's transpiring. 
Uh, nobody wants to see any member of our society treated inappropriately by a police officer. But it's easy to just tell the big lie that that's what police officers do repetitively. Now, there's clearly are examples of one inappropriate police behavior, and, and many times that's felonious behavior, but many, many times it's also the cop had a half a second to make a life-altering, life-changing decision. And we have to make sure the men and women of policing are physically able to do that. And we're not. When I think of mental health with police, I look at obesity and sleep disorder, and it huge red flags to me. When, when you look at sleep disorder with police, we know that in order to sustain good judgment, people have to average seven hours of sleep per day, seven to eight hours of sleep per day. 83% of police do not report that. They, they, they have inadequate sleep. When, when reaction time studies are done, now I know that when we do these videos about police officers making police-related subject matter decisions, the police officers prevail. But that's not a reaction time study. That's a knowledge, that's a test of the police officer's knowledge of police subject matter. In a culture-free reaction time, profession-fair reaction time studies, police officers make up to 600% more judgment errors and reaction time errors than civilians do and it's strictly because they're averaging four to six hours of sleep, not seven to eight. And yet when we do training, we spend virtually no time talking about sleep hygiene. I'm always amazed at professions that will not permit the employee to work beyond a certain given number of hours per day. Flight attendants can only stay on duty a given number of hours per day. And, and I'm not berating flight attendants. There, there are certain things they do that are very important but majority of it's passing out peanuts and drinks and they're not making life and death decisions on a daily basis. Yet that profession has a higher standard of sleep hygiene than does law enforcement. where We put people into encounters that are, every encounter with a police officer is an armed encounter because the police officers bring a weapon into the, into the context and we have to put them in a situation where they're physically able to make judgment, defend their weapon, and at the exact same, same time have reaction time. And, and, and we're just not. We're, we're putting police officers into situations where with, a minimal, with minimal additions to training, we can produce huge changes. It's, when we look at depression studies, as little as 20 minutes a day of moderate exercise reduces depression as effectively as antidepressant medication. Yet I find very few police departments that will mandate physical exercise. They'll, I mean mandate it. Don't say, oh, well, yeah, if nothing else is going on, you can go in the gym. Yeah, well, tell me when that happens. I mean mandate it. You don't leave here until you exercise every day. And it, it always amazes me. When I'll go to stress conferences, I'll see psychologists, I'll see social workers, chaplains, peer support people. But as I look around, I never see the physical fitness coordinator for the department. And yet that's the simplest and the cheapest way to make interventions in depression and the reduction of anxiety, which are precursors to post-traumatic stress disorder. So I guess, Betsy, if you ask me, are we doing good with mental health? Yes, with traditional mental health, it's good, it's there. The cops have it available to them. With what's actually happening to police officers operationally, no. We're missing the boat as much now as we did 40 years ago. Which is so incredibly sad because 
we now have the resources, we have the tools available to be able to make these changes. I think one of the issues we have is when you talk about, you know, 20 minutes of exercise, I think a lot of cops, and I used to be one of those cops, where I thought if I, if I didn't have an hour and a half to spend in the gym or I couldn't run 10 miles, then I didn't even bother. When you talk about 20 minutes of exercise, what are you talking about? Well, you're not firefighters. You have a job to do. You know what I mean? You're not. <laughs> I, I love firefighters, but gosh, they're, they're in great shape. They worry about nutrition. They, and they, they're not in a constant drip of adrenaline all day long like the cop is. Firefighters are light years ahead of law enforcement when it comes to actually mental health to assist. It, when, you, when you look at the big, the big changes, the big title changes in mental health for police, the, the big one I think came about with the introduction of the awareness of post-traumatic stress disorder with the, the uh, debriefing programs. Well, that came from firefighters. The, the infusion of peer support came from firefighters. So I think we have to look as, as competitive as cops and firefighters are, we have to understand the firefighters are doing it right. They're putting a premium on physical fitness and we're not. When, usually when you talk about physical fitness, people think you're talking about, you know, the strength to wrestle down the bad guy. Well, yeah, that's part of it. You have to have good ground fighting skills and tactical control skills. But when I think of one way for a police officer to reduce anxiety and depression, the immediate go-to for me is having the cops start walking. Have the cops start walking every day. They, they don't have to you know, run the Boston Marathon with razor blades in their shorts or any bizarre feats of physical uh, extreme. Just go for a walk, a brisk walk every day. Monitor your heart rate, put it into the exercise range, get on a bicycle, do it every day. And when we start doing that, then we start seeing police officers reduce levels of depression, reduce levels of anxiety, and they also increase socialization. Once the cop drops into that post-vigilance depression, they disengage. They don't wanna answer the phone. They, they wanna just sit and pull back. And cumulatively, over the course of years, that can lead to a very angry, stressed, isolated person, which leads to the tragedies of the, the, the premature deaths and suicides that we see in policing. Now, Doc, in, relate, uh, in relation to this, we've had over 120 police officers die of COVID-19. I mean, we've never seen anything like it. And, and unfortunately, when I look at those officers and I hear a lot of the stories, we see that most of them had some pretty extraordinary uh, comorbidity situations that's, that are directly related to what you're talking about. Isn't that correct? Well, you know, I, I'm not any expert on, on COVID, uh, but I, 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 I hang around with experts on pre-morbid, you know, morbidity issues with police. And when I talk with them, one of the things I find is when they take samples of insulin, looking for insulin resistance in police, they find between 50 and 80% of the officers are already into that uh, pathological range. So when we look at obesity, we look at heart disease in police. Um, I know police officers that do their entire career and they don't have a, a physical. We don't, they, they get a physical before they're hired and, and maybe get a physical when they retire and you're kind of on your own for the 30 years in between. Annual physicals should be absolutely mandated for police officers. They should be mandated so we can, we can defuse the, the, the early diseases that can be prevented. 
which, which I don't think we do. And, and we, we see police officers dying of diseases that are totally reflective of the lifestyle uh, that they live. For, for decades, many states have had presumptive injuries for police. Heart disease and stroke is a presumptive injury for police officers, for example, in California. And, and I always think of uh, Gordon Graham, who, who is one of the best known trainer in North America. He always says, if it's predictable, it's preventable. Well, declaring something a presumptive injury tells you it's predictable. And yet we do nothing to prevent that with American law enforcement today. And that, I, I see that as part of the mental health program there. And I, I don't know if, if, uh, if, the, if the average police officer is aware that if they've gained that extra weight since the academy, they gotta start doing something about it. If that cop thinks it's okay to go to work on two hours of sleep, they have to know. That's like going to work with a weapon that doesn't work. Having a brain that doesn't work is just as lethal. Absolutely. And, and, and yet, you know, we do it because that, you know, that's the culture of our profession. I, you know, I can remember numerous times being at work for over 24 hours and then getting a couple hours of sleep and, and going to court. You know, we do yeah. it. Our, and frankly, our jurisdictions expect us to do it. There's a kind of an atmosphere. Well, now. that's, that's, well, people say retrain the police. That's what we need to retrain them on. That's what we need. Exactly. We need. And yet all this costs money, Doc. And, and well, it's going to cost money. Problem. Absolutely. It's going to cost money. And cops need to be paid more money, not less money, more money. They need to be paid. Cops need to have four times the vacation hours that they have right now. We need to start getting in line with Australia and Canada. And this this two weeks a year for uh, over the course of the first year is insane for police officers. Police officers have to have sabbaticals. You know, I can go down to the local state university and become a professor and teach freshman psychology and all the tremendous stress of teaching freshman psychology. After about six years, I'll get a sabbatical, which is a great idea. Go write that book, do what you need to do. But I can become a police officer and respond to family fights, fatal car accidents, deal with drunks, deal with violent men and women and tragedies for the next 30 years and not get a break. Every, about every six years, a cop needs to get an extended, and I don't mean four weeks, I mean six months to a year of compensated sabbatical. And that police officer is away from it. And when we start looking at those sorts of issues, then we'll, then we'll retrain the police. Then, then, we'll, then we'll, look at, we'll look at the issues. What, what I'm hearing right now about you know, the, the redefining the training for police, it's in a vacuum. The people who say that know nothing about the history of policing or the movements of change that have occurred over the last 50 years in policing. It's like, like they think they've invented fire. Um, the, the, the 1968 Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act articulated most of these issues. Well, what's that been, 53 years ago? And, and we're, we're, we don't even look internally at the changes our profession needs to make. And, and we do need to make changes. We do need to have cops not be able to work 20 hours and then get two hours of sleep and then go out and make life and death decisions. You can't do that. It's impossible. Uh, it, yeah, it, it is impossible. And, and, and yet you're right. That, that's what cops do every single day in this country. You, you know, very, just very briefly, Doc, what can citizens do um, to help support their law enforcement and to help push some of these ideas to their city councils and their county boards? 
I think they can push ideas to their city councils and, and their, their board of supervisors. I'm always amazed when I see a citizen's advisory board and the community. And I always think of it as the police hatred board because so often these are citizens that have some grudge against police. Some, they come in with some preconceived notion that police are all bad and police are racist. And now they're gonna use their position to, uh, to attack the police. I think having the average citizen participate in police advisory boards, attend city council meetings. If they have a thought, speak up about those thoughts because otherwise the microphone is just grabbed by anti-police activists and who basically articulate in misinformation. You know, whenever I think of, um, of public safety, I always think of the changes that occurred in New York City under William Bratton when he was commissioner of New York City. About 2,300 homicides per year were occurring. And with Bratton's philosophy of policing and, and changes in, in police procedures that he directed, that dropped to a little over 300 deaths per year. We go from 2,300 to 300 deaths per year. That means 2,000 people a year did not die. And that stayed like that for almost two decades. So the best number is about 40,000 young people did not die in that city of homicide and crime. And yet no one articulates that. No one speaks about that. Um, but police officers are one of the institutions that save lives every day. And they're saving lives of people in high crime areas, which are primarily people of color. Now, those folks have been exposed to systemic racism. Absolutely, absolutely but not by the police officer, by the school district, by the banking institutions, by employing agencies, by housing authorities. But it's very nice that the rest of society gets to sit back and blame police officers for the racism that is systemic and historically has been systemic. I think most cops are pretty darn colorblind. They look at behavior. They don't look at epidermis. They look at behavior. They wanna go home at night to their loved ones. Yet, I think it's very easy to, to blame police officers who are the end result of a society that has had to deal with hundreds of years of racism. But I'm often astounded at, at looking at how diverse police departments have been. And I still look at boardrooms and school districts that don't even remotely show that diversity that police departments have. I, you know, I, yeah, you're absolutely right. Dr. Kevin Gilmartin, you've given us so much to think about and uh, we appreciate you spending some time with us uh, today. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, join us at nationalpolice.org. Mm -hmm.